1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Human Rights, a podcast channel of, on the New Books Network. I'm Rin a uh, host of the channel. And today we'll be talking with Dilek Kurban about her new book, uh, Limits of Supranational Justice, the European Court of Human Rights and Turkey's Kurdish Conflict. Uh, welcome. <laughs> welcome to the show. I was wondering if you could, um, <laughs> I was wondering if you could begin by telling us a little bit about yourself.
1: Sure. Um, thank you for having me. Um, so, um, yeah, so my name is Dilek Kurban. I am from Turkey, originally born and raised, um, where I also did my undergraduate and then I um Uh, spent several years in the United States doing graduate studies. I studied law in the United States. I did a JD um, um, at Columbia Law School. And then I spent around a decade back in Turkey um, doing policy-oriented research work um, as part of this, what we then thought to be the democratization process in Turkey. Um, Subsequently, I've moved to Berlin um, where I'm... Located now, and I transitioned to academia. On um, the book is um, a the outcome of um, it's actually based on my PhD, uh, which I did at Maastricht um, University Law Department. Um, and you know, it was pub- I defended my um, thesis PhD in February two thousand eighteen, and then turned it into a book. So, um, which came out in November, 2020. Um, currently, I'm in Florence as a Max Weber Postdoctoral Fellow at the European University Institute, and um, and I'm a sociological, sociolegal legal um, researcher. I'm a human rights lawyer engaged in sociolegal legal um, research, and the book is really the product of a couple of things. I would say, I mean, it's 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 my it's based on. My observations, my observations, and imp- the empirical data um, that I gathered doing work in Turkey during this phase that I mentioned earlier, when I worked at a think tank doing um, policy work, um, and um, and then um, on which then I, um, um, you know, turn into a PhD, um, as I said. But it's also you know sort of a, you know, it's also based on my personal observations and experience. Um, um, in Turkey, as someone uh, you know from from that country,
2: I was wondering um, if we could start out the the conversation about this really amazing book. Um, I feel really lucky that I, I had the time and the space to really sit with it because there's there's a lot going on, um, lot going on in it. But I, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the process um, of sort of how this this came to be a little bit more. Um, I, I find that in in some books, sort of the how researchers actually did the work is sort of in the background, but this was, it was really in the fore. Um, and especially you emphasize, you know, the length of time that went into really thinking about this project.
1: Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, I, I talk about it in the preface, um, um, you know, the, the, I tell the story. Uh, I think that's, um, that's what uh, maybe you had in your mind in asking this. And thank you for asking that. So it was in 1998, um, I was at the time a master's student at Columbia you know, studying human rights. And um, I spent several weeks in Turkey's Kurdish region as act- as a translator and assistant to a um, fact-finding, fact-finding delegation from the United States. So I was accompanying a group of legal scholars, law students, and um, lawyers, uh, mainly from Fordham Law School, who were doing fact-finding investigation on um, independence of judiciary fact uh, free uh, um, I'm sorry fair um, right to fair trial uh, in Turkey and also the criminalization of human rights defendants um, and I spent so that was the first time that I met Kurdish human rights lawyers um, I had been to the Kurdish region before I am um, I am Kurdish I come from um, a Kurdish immigrant family, but I had never been first of all to Diyarbakir, which is really the you know the unofficial let's say capital of the Kurdish region. It's the political center, and I had never by then I had not met Kurdish human rights lawyers before. So two things happened. I think that that that, end, that ended up being very formative for my own life, um, and also it resulted in this book. One is I I saw um, that. Although I was translating their conversations, I saw that Kurdish human rights lawyers and American human rights lawyers were speaking a language that I did not know, the language of law. Um, and it, um, you know, made me understand that I actually had to go to law school to be a, because at the time I wanted to be a human rights a- activist and advocate. I was not interested in academic work. Um, and so that was one thing. But more importantly, I was just struck by these lawyers um, they were in their early 30s um, and they were engaged in human rights work at a, at a time and place which actually was which made it very dangerous the Kurdish region was still governed by state of emergency um, they were representing victims of state violence um, gross you know gross human rights violations extrajudicial executions enforced disappearances torture kurdish you know these were sort of these were mostly illiterate, um, uh, powerless, marginalized Kurdish peasants, but also some middle class as well. So they were um, representing these um, victims, but the lawyers themselves were also victims of state violence because of their legal work. So they became, you know, they were arrested, held in incommunicado detention, subject to ill treatment and torture, um, and and none of them spoke English. They had absolutely no access to transnational networks. And I mean, they, they were really, they really were um, living uh, under gunfire. Um, and yet they were litigating before the European Court of Human Rights and winning precedent setting judgments. I was just, I really was truly, truly, truly impressed. Um, so, as I said, I decided to go to law school, which I did. Um, you know, two years later, I went back to Colombia and studied law. Um, and at the time, I also decided um, that I should, you know, engage in ECH, a European Court of Human Rights litigation, which I did not do. Um, but I wrote this book. Um, the, the story stayed with me for a very, very long time. I mean, over time, over these years, I was, I was, all, I was in touch with these lawyers. Um, some of them became my very good friends, who are still very dear friends and colleagues. Um, along the way, I met new ones. Um, I engaged in uh, all sorts of collaborations, you know, sometimes we we organized advocacy events together. Sometimes I interviewed them as part of my um, field work. Uh, We chatted, uh, you know, for years. We had conversations over dinner in conference settings, informal, formal. I listened to them. I read their work. Um, So, you know, the book is not, it's not, I mean, of course, later I did intensive field work particularly for the book, but it's just based on these sort of, what is it, 98 to, yeah, it was published, I mean, I finished writing in 2017, um, I guess, you know, maybe 15 years or so. Over than that, um, of the, well, of the story, but, but really, my um, you know, I went back to Turkey in two thousand five. So, so what is it like fifteen years maybe, of um, thinking, researching um, um, about about these lawyers? You know, the, the the starting point of the book really I want is that I wanted their stories. I want to tell their story, the story of Kurdish lawyers, uh, especially because over the years I saw how um, little. Acknowledged they are in scholarship on the European Court of Human Rights and how little known their stories are for various reasons. Um, and it then, you know, and, and then when I started doing academic research and looking at literature, I was then struck for the second time by this incredible gap that there was in scholarship on the CHR on Turkey, but also in scholarship on legal mobilization. On legal mobilization in authoritarian regimes, including um, by the Kurdish um, lawyers, so that's in a nutshell the story.
2: Yeah, I I really think that the the time that you spent, you know, thinking about these questions, it really really comes through in the book because I don't I don't know how you could really wrestle with the scope that you're wrestling with, where you go, you know, you go into the historical past and then really bring us up to the present. Um, it's 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 wonderful. Um, I I'm thinking um, I I I know that in in some books it's it can be quite easy to sort of jump through you know chapter by chapter, um, but this this book I I loved how there are a lot of interconnecting a lot of interconnecting threads, um, and so when when you were saying um, just now about uh, about Turkish lawyer or sorry Kurdish lawyers I apologize um, what you're saying just now about Kurdish lawyers um, not getting credit for their work that was something that really struck me um, in reading this was that that was a theme that kept um, that kept coming up and even what you said um, just before of you know lawyers going to the European Court of Human Rights who might not speak the language and I was wondering if you could you know share a little bit about what you what you saw and how you really see this book as as filling that gap um, because in reading this book I was very convinced of that of that gap that was that was very evident to me.
1: Well, I'm so glad to hear that. Um, um, There are, okay, so two you know, the book engages in two primary scholarships, um, and that has to do with um, the, um, also the, um, my method in a way. So the question I ask is, well, let me, let me just go back and talk about the empirical gap, right? So, you know, as I start to read the scope sco- because the question, you know, the starting, um, one is, of course, I want to tell the story, you not know? I want to uh, tell the story of these Kurdish lawyers and how they litigated, what impact they made, etc. But of course, I also saw, I experienced during this 10 years that I, you know, spent in Turkey, sort of the rise and fall of democratization, and um, and witnessed how yet another reform era in Turkey ended up, you know, sort of collapsed, and that at the, at the end, um, it remained to be an authoritarian regime. Yet at the same time, this is also a country which um, has ratified the European Convention on Human Rights back in 1954. Not just that, Turkey is actually among the handful of countries that rat- that drafted the European Convention on Human Rights, not much, lesser known fact, um, and has been in the system from its birth. Um, and has been subject to the jurisdiction of the European Court of Human Rights since 1990. So this is a long time, right? And yet, you know, state violence continues. Um, the state is still engaged in gross human rights violations with impunity, um, and um, human rights lawyers are still under threat. And Turkey's policies, you know, on the Kurdish question, basically remain more or less intact, right? So the question, is so there's a puzzle here, right? How is that possible? How is it? And at the same time, the European Court of Human Rights is accepted, um, widely accepted, as the most effective human rights court in the world, right? So if it is the most effective human rights court in the world, how is it that it has failed in this particular country, which has been there from the beginning, as part of the system, at least, you know, had ratified so early on? And then when I looked at, so that was the puzzle, and then I thought, okay, I want to address this question not just through um, conventional legal analysis and research, which is you know, what we call um, sort of looking at the um, uh, laws and court decisions, not just that, um, which is more the top-down perspective, right, what the court has said and what impact it has had. But I, I, what I want to tell the story. I want to sort of say that at the same time through the bottom-up um, analysis of the legal mobilization of Kurdish lawyers, how they mobilized, what they expected, what kind of challenges they face along the way, and what outcomes they received and what and what they think about the court, how they perceive the court after all this experience. And that's a socio-legal um, part of my research. So I brought together sort of conventional doctrinal legal analysis and, um, and socio-legal research. So that means I engaged in two roughly scholarships, right? The first is top-down conventional um, uh, sort of um, legal analysis. I looked at the scholarship, which is also interdisciplinary, by the way. Um, So it's it's scholarship by lawyers, political scientists, sociologists on the ECHR, broadly on supranational course, but particularly on the ECHR. And then there, what you see, and that's the gap that I saw, um, big gap in a way that when you look at all these studies, which, you know, depict the CHR as the most, eff- it's a very effective court, at least until um, the accession of post-communist, you know, countries and the enlargement and the all kinds of problems that, that, has enlarged, that enlargement has caused not least to the docket of the European Court of Human Rights, that until then at least it was an effective court. It's just that, you know, it became, you know, the docket, um, its docket became uh, unmanageable after the enlargement and things have slowed down, understandably, but with some criticism, etc. So that's the, but what is interesting is that as I read through the scholarship, I saw that Turkey was either not mentioned at all, or mentioned literally, literally in a footnote or in a parenthesis, and that what that really—I mean—Turkey is a country that you cannot footnote, right? I mean, it's one of the seven countries that drafted the convention. It's been there from the, You have to explain this. What, you, you know, the, the failure of the ECHR system has to be explained in the case of Turkey, because for a long time it was the only authoritarian regime that was part of the Council of Europe. Not anymore, of course. After the accession, you had, you know. Russia and these days, arguably increasingly Poland and Hungary. So that was the first gap. The second is when I looked at legal mobilization um, scholarship, um, and I have to emphasize, of course, that legal mobilization scholarship is a, is a emerge. It's it's more recent, particularly in the European context. Um, there, too, you know, it started really in the u s. domestic context and then started looking at the European Court of Human Rights and the European Court of Justice. But I also saw that the conclusions, um, um, the theoretical conclusions and assumptions of this literature also doesn't sufficiently speak to authoritarian context because you know, let's say in the United States, lawyers, public interest lawyers, of course, also face all kinds of challenges. In mobilizing the law, um, but mostly these are um, challenges such as insufficient resources, funds, etc. Uh, whereas in authoritarian regimes, the challenges are just completely different, right? I mean, in you know, often is in the case of the Kurdish lawyers, they're really uh, legalizing, mobilizing at the cost of their lives or their physical security. So that's the kind of um, you know the gaps that I saw. Um, but in the end, you know, I what I I'm hoping that my book shows is I'm taking the European Court of Human Rights and its engagement in Turkey's Kurdish conflict as a case study to speak about the limitations and possibilities of effective judicial review by supranational courts in authoritarian regimes. So that could be Russia and the ECHR, it could be the inter-American system. Um, So I'm just hoping that the conclusions I draw and the questions I raise will have broader relevance for um, scholarship.
2: Yeah, I, I really appreciate how um how when you end, um, end this book, it's it's very much done with an eye towards future research research that this seems like very much like a, a starting point, um, I don't know, a provocation for us to think differently about about law and and mobilization. And I, I was also thinking as you were as you were speaking just now, um in uh, in chapter five, um, you're mentioning um, a bit about how legal mobilization um, depends on the basically, effectively, the the situation, the context um, in which you know human rights violations occur. Um, but what really, really struck me throughout this um, throughout this book, and something that you made quite clear, was that it also is the context that the Kurdish human rights lawyers themselves are operating in. Um, And that there is very much this, um, this political aspect to, you know, the, the state of Turkey's response to that, Um, which I I was, I was um, surprised and it was, it was, it was, uh, I don't know, a a bit of, a a bit upsetting, I guess. Um, I'm not sure exactly how to put it, but it was, I I really also um, admired the, the bravery of those who, who were advocating for these, for these rights um, I, I realized that I might have um, actually just sort of jumped through something quite quickly, um, but I, I was wondering if you could maybe speak for a few minutes about, you know, why why Kurdish people um, did in the first place start bringing these cases to the European um, Court of Human Rights.
1: Mm-hmm. May I just interrupt, Ren, just yeah, to ask you, am I giving too long answers? I tend to do that.
2: No, no, you're perfect. You know? this, is, this is fantastic. <laughs> but- it's is about that, you. Okay,
1: because, I, you know, I can go on and on. and I don't want to, you know.
2: Go for it. Okay.
1: Thank you. So why they litigate. Yes, exactly. Right. So why they went to the um, ECHR. Now, the human rights, of course, human rights law, international law, is based still, you know, one of the pillars of international law is state sovereignty. Right. And so it is based on the understanding that the principle that, that states are sovereign. And that, um, and that, when there are disputes between states or between states and individuals, um, to the extent that states invite supranational courts or international courts, then they seek um, um, med- either mediation from international courts or individuals um, seek help um, from them. Um, Ren, actually, let's just skip this whole thing. I'm just starting again. I think it's not necessary, as if I'm lecturing. <clears throat> Um, so the, the reason why, um, the reason was really simple, um, because throughout, and I, maybe I should just give a little bit of, just a little bit of context um, for those who may not be familiar um, with, with Turkey. The period that I'm, um, as you said earlier, there is historical you know, background in the book, but the period that I'm focusing on is 1987 to 2012, And both dates are, of course, significant. 1987, in 1987, three things happened in that one year. One, um, Turkey declared a state of emergency in the Kurdish region. I'll get back to that. Secondly, it accepted, the Turkish government accepted the individual right to petition the European Court of Human Rights, meaning individuals, Turks, citizens in Turkey now had the right to take their claims to the European Court of Human Rights. And third, Turkey um, made an um, application for EU membership. The last two are closely interrelated. The reason why Turkey accepted the right of individual petition was because it saw it as, it was completely strategic, right? Because it thought, the Turkish government thought rightfully that that could have enhanced its chances of getting um, candidacy status for EU membership, which was true, right? Right. But it's also ironic that, uh, that the government gave, in a way empowered, potentially empowered its citizens um, at the same time as it declared emergency in the Kurdish region. And that's because, and that sort of was the consensus actually uh, a government officials said at the time, it was clear that the Turkish government, no one in a way expected that this um, this tool would be utilized, that, that actually Turks would petition the ECHR. Certainly the Kurds, right? And the reason why there was a state of emergency declared is because since 1984, there was a civil war going on between the PKK, um, Kurdistan Workers' Party, PKK is the Kurdish acronym, and the Turkish military in the region. Within the framework of, of that um, war which is a civil war which the Turkish government um, has always characterized as you know counter terrorism that you know fighting against terrorism um, gross violations were com- um, uh, committed by um, by the official and unofficial agents of the Turkish government um, PKK also engaged in gross violations but um, because international human rights law is based on state responsibility my book is only uh, focused on what the Turkish government's agents have done And there are four categories, torture, forced displacement, coupled with property destruction, enforced uh, enforced disappearances, and extrajudicial executions. So what was going on in this region, which was governed by emergency rule, where um, government officials, military and civilian officials, were granted with extraordinary powers of, for example, evicting civilians from their homes without giving them um, uh, um, accommodation or uh, any assistance, just basically kicking people out of their homes, uh, exiles. Ex- I mean, there were just broad, broad, broad powers, media censorship, etc. Um, so during this period, that then enabled emergency rule, then sort of led to these really systematic and gross violations against the entire population in the rural, areas, you know, peasants in the rural centers. Who were accused of um, um, aiding and abetting the PKK to uh, middle class, um, you know, doctors, trade unionists, politicians, activists, humanized lawyers in the certain in the urban regions, and then victims um, started to go to courts, and, and that's also actually striking, right? Um, especially when you think that vast majority of the victims were peasants you know many of whom didn't even speak um, um, Turkish illiterate uneducated um, and yet they went to court right away uh, many of them right they would you know their son would be disappeared and then they would go to the prosecutor's office and um, with a few handful exceptions the judiciary did not do anything so this was a situation where state violence was enabled by judicial complicity Turkish judiciary basically watched; it sort of stood by and watched, right, and enabled uh, this to co- Either prosecutors would not do any, open any case, or conduct any investigations. Or sometimes they would, but then they wouldn't issue. You know, sort of, um, uh, they would just end uh, their investigations. Or in rare cases where a case was formally opened up, uh, courts would often issue lack of jurisdiction and just dismiss the case. So, and then. Because then, and then, you know, these Kurdish lawyers found out about, they knew about this, you know, decision that the ECHR was available. And they basically said, okay, let's try, let's just go. And at the time, it was very, fairly easy to um, apply to the ECHR. You did not have to speak English. They would just form out forms in Turkish and tax it. That's why. The reason why they applied mainly is because they had absolutely no um, uh, remedy in Turkish courts. And that's ironic, in a way, because international human rights law is based on the principle of state sovereignty, and in the case of the European Court of Human Rights, this translates into this principle of exhaustion of domestic remedies. The understanding is that um, applicants can only file their petitions with the ECHR, meaning people can only go to the European Court of Human Rights after they demonstrate that they've exhausted all the domestic legal remedies at home. So you first have to go to your own courts, right? And what happened, basically, is that ECHR, in the end, had to do an ex- have to give an exception. You know, in the famous 1996 Octavar, Judgment of and Others, the court said, basically saw the reality that in the emergency region, there was no, um, the courts were not hearing these cases. People had no place to turn to, you know, on judicial authority. So the court said, OK, I'm going to make an exception on a case-by-case basis, where uh, there there are no adequate um, remedies, then um, if the domestic remedies are not adequate or if they are not existing, then this exception doesn't apply. So that's how
0: it started. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Something that um, that really struck me throughout <laughs> throughout the book, and I think um, perhaps some of this too, is I, uh, I'm i also sort of in the, the socio-legal world as well, and I I find questions of, Evidence and proof really important and uh, sometimes can be quite upsetting this this question of of evidence and proving these particular human rights abuses which which you do describe in in the book the the torture um you know forced disappearances you know the the vignettes of someone being killed and their family members just trying to you know one like bring <laughs> bring someone inside um so that they don't bleed to death and then also you know be able to bury them those are very heartbreaking and i I, I appreciate the way in which you you told those stories. Um I was I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about this this question of of evidence and proof, because it seems to be a, a big issue both in terms of the the Kurdish lawyers who are really trying to prove that these, you know, what what they describe as happening actually happens while in the face of, you know, as you describe a few times of um uh, Turkish military, Turkish police, you know, destroying evidence or, you know, the the state just saying, no, 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 like this, this never happened.
1: Right. I mean, that's really, I mean, that was a, at the heart of these, um, one of the biggest challenges of these cases. Um, you know, I tell, so I tell the maybe just a little bit of background in a way is that, as I said earlier, I started in 1987 and until 2012 and 2012 is the reason, the, the end date, because that's when um, Turkey, under EU pressure, uh, accepted, granted its citizens the individual right to constitutional complaint. Um, so now individuals in Turkey can go to constitutional court, uh, which then added, of course, yet another layer of domestic remedy to be exhausted, and that sort of changed the, the, the story a little bit, not much though. Although in the conclusion chapter, as you know, I, I bring it to today, you know, post-2012 developments too. But let me close the parenthesis and get back to you. Um, so... The, the reason why I started answering your question like this is because, you know, because I'm telling the story of a couple of decades of engagement, ECHR's engagement, I, show, I try to show how there is no one story. Right? There are phases. The ECHR's involvement and oversight has gone through phases, which I broadly, I mean, I, you know, show, um, you know, three broad phases. But one could, of course, argue that maybe it's more than that. And what determined these phases were sort of the the diminishing or increasing um, engagement of the ECHR were political and legal developments in Turkey, but also in the Council of Europe, you know, the enlargement, the reforms that were made in this European Convention system or the reforms made in Turkey because of the EU accession process. But there are also, so certain things change, you know, in the story, but there are also certain givens that don't change. The evidence, um, the European Court of Human Rights stands on um, the evidentiary um, requirements. is one of the constants. Even during the, what I call the golden age, in a way, the 90s, the first phase, um, the, the period when the European Court of Human Rights um, was the boldest, the most involved in the Kurdish cases, and did issue uh, precedent-setting judgments. Even then, the court exercised restraint, and I argue that an unjustifiable restraint. And evidence was the, one of the main issues. So the ECHR, on the, I mean, I keep saying ECHR, I hope it's evidently clear to the audience by now that it's the European Court of Human Rights. The European Court of Human Rights um, imposes um, um, an evidentiary um Burden called beyond reasonable doubt. So applicants are required to demonstrate their claims beyond reasonable doubt. Right, that that an average, um, um, an average um, uh, uninformed individual should not have, um, you know, sh- shouldn't have. Sort of, it should be clear to uh, to an average person that. That the applicant has actually made a demonstrated supported his claims or her claims. Problem is, and this is this was actually an objection that was made to the court also internally by some of the judges. Uh, for example, Judge Bonello at the time, right? So there were dissenters. There was not a uniformity. There was a clear majority, obviously, um, but there were a few judges that from the beginning had an issue with this, and th- what they were saying was. You know, they, we're not a criminal court. This is an evidentiary standard that is imposed on, you know, in criminal trials, on, on prosecutors. Because, of course, at the end, what is at stake is an individual's life and physical security, right? I mean, you may end up in jail. So the state had, the prosecutors have burden to prove their, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, accusations beyond reasonable doubt. Whereas this is a human rights court. We're establishing state responsibility, which will lead in, you know, if the state loses compensation um, or maybe um, some uh, you know, general reform uh, requirements. This is just an, an extremely high burden of proof, particularly in cases like this, which, as you mentioned, let's take enforced disappearance. Right. So what was happening? This was, exa- you know, what was happening in the Kurdish region for those of you know, those listeners who may be more familiar, for example, what was what was happening in Central America? you know, in the 70s, for example, in Honduras and stuff, it was pretty much the same thing, right? So individuals would be just picked up from, you know, people walking on the street, daylight, broad daylight, would be picked up um, by some civilian dressed men in, you know, who were driving cars, often without a license number. Um, White Renaults they were. They would just put, you know, dragged into a car and then disappeared. And that was it. And in many cases, they would be disappeared for good. There would be nobody found. If the um, families were um, lucky, um, the case would result in extrajudicial execution, meaning um, body executed body would um, would be found somewhere a couple of days later, or in a grave months or years later. So, so the victim, victims' families would go to, of course, authorities right away. As I said, you know, they go to uh, police, to prosecutors, and in all cases, um, the authorities would deny that the individual was in their custody. So these are cases where there was complete government denial, right? And also before the European Court of Human Rights, so where the case would reach Strasbourg, Turkish government's defense was always the same: "Oh, we didn't, we didn't, we didn't do it, right? We didn't detain this person. Also in torture cases, right? Either we didn't detain it or we didn't do it, and oftentimes blaming on the PKK without absolutely no ground, although there was no investigation made, right? And so in this circumstance, then and there's nobody, right? So the government claims that the person denies that the person was detained or disappeared or you know killed the CHR was expecting applicants to prove beyond reasonable doubt that the government was responsible for the abduction of this person for the disappearance of it's just impossible how can you because how can you prove that right i mean there's no custody record so that that's really the that is one of the fundamental um, problems with the CHRs uh, jurisprudence that they just did not do that, and that's one difference, by the way, with the Inter American Court of Human Rights, which you know we can talk about later. I'm saying this because you know I also don't want listeners to think that oh maybe maybe that's what supranational human rights courts do, maybe that's what it was um, uh, that, that the court's hands were tied. If, if they they weren't, you know, the court could have been. Much more flexible on evidentiary issues, and of course on other issues too.
2: I, I appreciate you um, highlighting the Inter American Court of Human Rights because I do have a have a question um, for you about that in in a minute. Um, but I I also realize that we've been I've I've been asking questions sort of around um, a fairly major uh, political issue, political context that you that you do highlight in the book, um, which is uh, Turkey seeking to join the EU. Um, and I, I was hoping that you could talk a little bit more about sort of how how that process actually informed, you know, a lot of the a lot of the context for what you're describing. Um, I was I was just really struck by again, you know, realizing that questions of access to justice, access to to legal recourse, that sort of thing can also be very much influenced by these sort of big um international political processes.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, going back to the Latin American case, and this is not novel to Turkey, you know, when you look at, for example, um, you know, Argentina, how the military dictatorship there and, um, that was largely due. Of course, there was resistance domestically, but but largely due to um, the pressure of um, external governments, first and foremost, of course, the United States. You know, there was a lot of diplomatic pressure. I mean, certainly the military defeat that they had in the Falklands also have, I mean, I don't want to deviate here, but the point I'm trying to make is is that authoritarian regimes, such as Turkey, where in authoritarian regimes, where the state is very strong and civil society is very weak, although we have a vibrant civil society in Turkey, but it's very weak. And where, say, violence is rampant, where there's a historical legacy, I should also mention that. this is It didn't start with the Kurdish conflict, you know. You can go back to the 1915 Armenian genocide. Um, yet another, you know, um, uh, um, a case of total impunity. But anyway, so in these contexts, um, external pressure, and, and, and where um, when you're talking about countries which are economically not independent, and which are dependent on, um, you know, foreign financial assistance or international trade or etc. Like Turkey, right? Um, so it's not a it's not a um, um, it's not a rich country. It doesn't have its own resources. It's really completely dependent on, especially the EU in term, you know, financially. Um, there, external actors have a very important role to play. A political pressure, diplomatic pressure, do not necessarily and human rights violations do not necessarily lead to, um, 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 you know, complete uh, regime change. I, I mean, when I say regime change, I'm talking about legal regime, but they do they do make a difference. Now, in the case of Turkey, the reason there was this phase that I talked earlier, where I was back in Turkey and engaged in this democratization program, you know, the, the process is um, that was the phase where the EU that, that was made possible by the EU's decision. In 1999, to give Turkey candidate status, and then in 2004, end of 2004, to start accession negotiations, but especially the first one, because once you have candidate status, that then means that European Commission starts to um, monitor. There are there are these criteria that candidate mem- countries have to come, you know, come um, uh, co- uh, sorry abide by including human rights, rule of law, et cetera, and then you're monitored, right? And then the EU looks and they issue progress reports annually and say, okay, you've done this and this, but you still have to do this and this. That's where the ECHR came into picture because the European Union, not just in Turkey, but in all candidate countries and later in accession countries, considered European Court of Human Rights' judgments as benchmarks in measuring progress, Right. For example, you know, it would say, okay, the European Court of Human Rights found this case where violation in, for example, the presence of military judge in state security courts, you have to then remove these judges, right? You have to. Uh, and then the and then the Turkish government started doing them. So the, the, there was a phase where there was really an opportunity, there was a window of opportunity for change, um, but more importantly, for the empowerment of Civil rights movement in Turkey. I think for me, that's the most important part of it, because we know that so many of the reforms that were done—I mean, some were real, but many were cosmetic, and then many were rolled back. But what the EU really did—and I saw this firsthand because I was part of it—that whole process—is that it really opened up this process of it opened up space for democratic dialogue, for and and you see mush, we saw mushrooming of NGOs. Etc. cetera, um, and it really empowered, um, empowered human rights, you know, the human rights movement. So whatever change has happened was not the direct result of ECHR judgments, but it was because EU made ECHR judgments, used ECHR judgments as benchmark to, pro, you know, to measure progress. And then the European Union you know, made two mistakes, in my opinion. One, um, the first, is that they gave uh, accession status um, prematurely. That was too early, that decision. Um, you know Erdogan had just came to power, and he and his government were we appeared serious and determined, and they wanted quick result. And the European Union, in order to support Erdogan against the military, which was very powerful in Turkey, um, made an exception for the first time in history. No other candidate country had such favorable uh, treatment. The EU basically started to started to start accession process, although. Turkey had not yet fully complied with fulfilled the accession criteria. The language was that Turkey sufficiently fulfilled accession criteria, which I think was too. It was that was not right um, because then that lifted the pressure, reform pressure. But then the second mistake that they made is that soon after, due to domestic developments in France, Germany, Merkel and Sarkozy coming to power, um, EU effectively ended effectively not formally, ended the accession process very soon after it started. And that was also not right because, you know, Turkey was making progress. Also, Cyprus had joined in the unanimity. Cyprus started to block uh, decision-making in the EU because of the Cyprus problem, etc. Things got really complicated. But going back to my, you know, our conversation and, the bo- you know, my book and what that matters is that, that then you see how that affected the reforms that were carried out in Turkey and Turkey's relation with the European Court of Human Rights, because then Turkey gradually started to sort of, you know, not care so much about the ECHR. So it's never just about, of course, it's never just about law. No, it's law and politics.
2: I just, in in listening to you um, now, and then also again, sort of reflecting on um, my my (laughs) thoughts um, while reading this book, a, a, a very clear thread that goes through all of this is the question of effectiveness. Um, so, like, what makes a what makes a court effective? You know, is the is the European Court of Human Rights sort of effective in in particular ways? Um, and something that you've mentioned in our conversation and that also comes through in the book is the Inter American Court of Human Rights. And I, I was hoping you could talk maybe a little about how how you see um, how you see this this book, you know, as sort of opening up a question, or as you know, looking to other places like the Inter uh, American Court of Human Rights to get at this this broader question of effectiveness. Um, and this this I think is th- this question of effectiveness. Um, I was really struck by because it just it feels so desperately important because as you as you really lay out, you know, we're talking about really serious human rights abuses, um, and so this this question of you know. How how to make courts more effective, or sort of how how to have different responses to human rights abuses? It just it's it's really really pressing.
1: Absolutely, and and more so. No, I mean uh, now since the publication of since I finished writing this book, you know even more so. Now you know there's this whole um, you know with discussions on Poland and Hungary in Europe, etc. Certainly, no. I mean the, I mean let's start with. Human rights court. So, what it, you know, what is the function of the European Court of Human Rights? I mean, I think that's the primary, one of the primary fundamental questions that we need to raise when we discuss and talk about these courts. What is its um, function, and in whose eyes should it seek its legitimacy? One problem that I see when I you know follow the discussions, debates on on the ECHR. Um, and also, you know, sort of hear ECHR officials and judges speak, is that I just, I think, I think they've kind of, many of them, at many times, they lose track of who they are, who they are supposed to protect and serve. I would think, and I think I'm right, that their primary stakeholders are us, individuals, people. Um, yeah, I mean, especially, of course, human rights victims or potential human rights victims, right, who, because of human rights victims in these cases are, you know, our human rights are violated by our own governments, right? And especially in situations like Turkey, where you're talking about gross human rights violations, torture, exec- judicial execution by state agents, and whether judicial complicity, then there is an indispensable role for supranational courts to play. Precisely because there's no other place to turn for these individuals, right? Because the fund, I mean, human rights, of course, prom- has human rights law have made many promises, increasing promises, right? But I think the fundamental promise, we may argue, is the promise given to us that you know we will be protected from torture or being murdered. I mean, that's, I think, and, and when you look at right to life and free from torture, these are unconditional Um um, I mean, it's particularly, you know, torture. But you know, there's, no, there is no if and but. It's not like freedom of expression. Um, and so, and I think that what I, see, you know, my book is not a comparative study on inter-American and European systems. That's what I'm doing now. Actually, we may talk about it later if there's time. But the reason I just basically, in concluding my conclusion, I kind of draw, make some, I draw upon. The, the inter-american court to highlight this because what the inter-american court did in its first judgment by the way, very first judgment in 1989 is velazquez Rodriguez versus Honduras enforced disappearance case. Same story pretty much no I mean again, you know the, in the victim was disappeared, government denies, vict- uh, family is desperate. they every authority that they turn to, domestic level, turns them down, etc., and then they finally go to the Inter-American Court of Human Rights. Again, there's no evidence, no. So what the court does there, the Inter-American Court, kind of takes a step back and looks at the big picture. And the court says, okay, this is an enforced disappearance case. The regime is, you know, I mean, it's a brutal regime, basically. They're denying it. So what I'm going to do is that I'm going to be flexible, on um, in dealing with this case. On evidence issues, for example, what the court does there is it, it accepts circumstantial evidence because there is no direct evidence. And the court says, okay, I'm, just bring me whatever you can. So witness testimonies, media reports, reports of international human rights organizations. And then the court looks at the totality of this and says, it's not just Mr. Velasquez Rodriguez, there were others. And then the court says, well, there's a pattern here. You know, the families pretty much say the same story. Um, you know, the kind of vehicles, the way it's done, the denial, etc. And then you have these reports backing them up by also international organizations. And the Inter-American Court says there's a state policy here. Based on one case alone, based on cert- because it accepts circumstantial evidence, it says that the Honduras was engaged in a policy, state practice of enforced disappearances against hundreds of people. The European Court of Human Rights, after dozens and dozens of judgments, very similar judgments, to this day has never said that. That, that, that Turkey engaged in a policy of torture, that Turkey engaged in enforced disappearances, although although non-judicial bodies of the United Nations, but also of the Council of Europe, of which the ECHR is a part of, and I'm here talking about the European Committee, for example, for the prevention of torture, UN's various special representatives, rapporteurs, etc., who base their reports on fact findings that they've done in Turkey, Unlike in Strasbourg, I mean, Strasbourg in some cases did fact-finding hearings, but these people, these rapporteurs, committee members, they actually went to Turkey, they went to detention centers, they did interview victims and families and doctors and lawyers and government officials, and based on that comprehensive report, concluded that torture was systematic in Turkey, that there were enforced disappearances, and the ECHR did not take this into consideration as evidence. I mean, that, that, that begs explanation. And we have to, you know, hold ECHR accountable for that. So so going back to effectiveness, I think what I'm proposing, humbly proposing in the book, is that we really need to rethink effectiveness when it comes to authoritarian regimes. Everything that I'm saying concerns authoritarian regimes, not liberal democracies where with all their imperfections, there are courts functioning, people have access to, you know, judicial review, etc., in these contexts, authoritarian regimes engage in state violence. There is judicial complicity and against minorities. Of course, we didn't talk about that, but the fact that Kurds are minority is important because minorities, by definition, are minority. Also, power—you know—in terms of political power, they just don't have the means to influence policies, etc. Is that we need to think about effectiveness in a different way? And I propose that a supranational court is effective if it does two things, and that comes back to the top-down and bottom-up dimensions I talked earlier. Um, the first is, it's a it's a, it's a court that is, a, I mean, effectiveness cannot be a matter of compliance, because as I said, authoritarian regimes rarely comply, even if they adopt some reforms, they're cosmetic, they roll these, you know, reforms back, etc. Courts are effective if they are exhausting all of their powers. If what I'm saying, you know, in daily words, in a way, uh, if they're doing their best. You know, if they're exhausting all of their jurisprudential tools and resources, right, holding fact-finding hearings, being flexible on evidentiary issues, um, um, narrowing margin of appreciation that they grant to governments, um, et cetera, et cetera. And there are, there's a whole list there. Um, so that's one. And the second is, that's the bottom-up, is that they are effective, I think, if they are open to the legal mobilization of minorities, you know they have to they have to remain open. Um, whereas the ECHR, and this is a trend that has gone, um, it's become all the more clear in recent years in Turkey after the failed coup, is that the ECHR is now become is basically it has become a very 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 inaccessible court for victims. It assumes um, the effectiveness of domestic remedies in Turkey. It, you know rejects cases because individuals, applicants did not go to the constitutional court or went to constitutional court, but did not wait for the result of their complaints. And I mean, the fundamental problem there is, I think that the ECHR has been and remains in denial of, the fund, of this basic fact that Turkey is not a democratic regime. So in a democratic regime, you cannot apply subsidiarity principle, this principle of um, you know that that supranational court supervision is subsidiary to those of domestic courts that we should first you know the domestic you know the the question that um, individuals have to exhaust domestic remedies all of the what I'm saying in the end is that when it comes to authoritarian what I'm proposing is this courts have to have differentiated jurisprudence they have to make a difference between, differentiate between authoritarian regimes and liberal democracies. And that's across the board in their procedural rules, in their substantive doctrine, in, you know, inadmissibility decisions, friendly settlements, we didn't even talk about that. But, um, you know, you cannot treat a liberal democracy and an authoritarian regime the same way. And they have to be much more stringent, much more activist in their oversight when it comes to, you know, the cases that I'm um, I, that, that my book is about. So that in a nutshell is, and the Inter-American um, Court seems to be, I mean, of course, there are, I know, kind of objections that can be made. It's a much, uh, its docket can cannot even be compared to the European Court of Human Rights. The European Court of Human Rights is just basically overwhelmed. It's paralyzed. That's true. The Inter-American Court of Human Rights has to deal with a much smaller um, um, docket. But I think it's interesting is that we don't First of all, there's not much comparative work on these two courts, although it's you know there is an emerging uh, you know jurisprudence, uh, sorry scholarship. But it's interesting also is that you know, and I heard this from uh, inter-American, I mean scholars of the inter-American system, they also kind of complain that you know European scholars of the European system kind of assume that the better one is the European one, so the inter-American one has to learn from from the European one. I think when it comes to authoritarian regimes, especially, it's the other way around. I mean there is because of the political history, of course, of the the Americas, you know, military dictatorships, et cetera, and the way that the Inter-American regime in general, not just the court, but also the commission, we have to emphasize the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, which still exists. It's a two-tier system, unlike the European one, is that they have a very valuable experience. I mean, really, in terms of dealing with these issues of transition, transitional justice, reparations, how to um, what kind of remedies to give in to victims of cross rights violations, etc. That that the European Court has to learn from. The problem is that the European Court now is just so preoccupied, especially under its um, current president, um, with the backlog, and it's you know they they're just they have they're acting with self interest um, of the the self interest to basically get rid of as many cases as possible. I
2: gave a very long answer again, Ren. No, that's, that's a that's a fantastic answer. Um, that actually, that's a that's a really great answer. In part because it it helps us sort of transition where um, we've taken up a lot of your time today, and I could I could definitely talk about this book for hours, um, <laughs> but I won't ask you to do that, of course. Um, and you you hinted at a current project that you're working on right now, so. I was I was hoping in the last few minutes, if you wouldn't mind sort of letting us know what you're what you're working on now.
1: Well, I mean, it's a it's a comparison, a comparative um, uh, project on the two systems, the Inter-American and the European Court of Human Rights. It's, of course, going to be um, law. I mean, you know, I'm I'm here for a year. Uh, it also my ability to do the project depends on my ability to raise funds, unfortunately, for this But what I want to do is to to get, I mean, to to seek answers to the question that I raised at the end of my, you know, in my book, is that, is there something inherent to um, supranational judicial oversight? Um, I mean, the ineffectiveness, ECHR's failure in Turkey, Mm -hmm. to what extent was that inherent to the constraints of supranational oversight? Because obviously there are constraints. But to what extent, it was because of the European Court of Human Rights' unwillingness to exhaust its powers, to make full use of its powers. And I'm looking at the inter-American system and the European system in terms of their dealings with oversights of authoritarian regimes again. So it's comparative, um, and I'm looking at issues such as oversight of emergency um, um, powers, um, special criminal courts, evidentiary issues, etc., to see how the two courts two systems rather have dealt with that and whether there is, you know, what can, what they can learn from each other. And this time I'm um, aiming to put forth a theory of effectiveness of supranational courts. If I can, we'll see.
2: (laughs) That sounds fantastic. Um, Didak, thank you so much for being on the show today and have a, have a, have a great rest of your day. Take care. Thank you very much
1: for having me.